Please pray with me. God, as we think about the scripture that we read and the song that we just sang, we realize that the faith that has been imparted to us by Christ has not been just simply so that we may be in right relationship with you. Well, that is a good thing. It's not so simply that our sins are forgiven. Well, that's also a great thing. But God, you have grafted us in through faith in Jesus Christ because you desire for your name to be glorified and you specifically desire that the person of Jesus might be glorified through that. So Father, we join together this morning as a gathering of people of the South Canyon Baptist Church that we might do what that song proclaims, that Jesus' rule and reign would be ever on our lips and that it would be on our lips for the sake of the glory of his name, not ours. Father, we pray that everything that we would do would lead to glory to Christ, not in ourselves, not in our own ambitions, but to Christ. So, Father, we thank you this morning for Christ's life, for his perfect obedience, and in his obedience that we now, in union with him, can say that we are obedient to the law where we were actually under a curse. Father, we thank you and want to glorify you because of Christ's death, the death that he took for sinners just like us in our place, paying the penalty and debt that we owed. But God, defeating sin and death through that, by paying in full, in full payment, the debt that we owe to you, O God, for the sin that we committed against you. God, we glorify you and we ask that Christ be glorified because of his resurrection, the linchpin of what we believe, the reality of Christ and what he has done, his life, his death would not mean anything if it were not for his resurrection. Father, we praise you this morning that through his resurrection, we also are raised to new life as we have faith in him. And Father, that because of his resurrection, we now are imputed righteousness. We are given righteousness because of his righteous life through faith. And Father, we finally pray and glorify you and glorify Christ because of his ascension, because he is not here right now but is before you sitting at your right hand, making intercession for those just like us every single day, every single second, making intercession for us so that you might hear from your children. So God, as we pray even now, we would recognize just the amazing thing that he ascended to your right hand, that even this prayer would not be heard by you if it were not for him ascending. And Father, we praise you because in his ascension, we know that as he promises well, there is going to be a day where he comes back for his children and he will make all things new. The lamb who was for sinners slain will return to make all things new. Father, we await for that day where Christ comes robed in splendor and majesty from the clouds. We await for that day where for eternity we will sing all glory be to Christ. Father, we await that day, so quicken that day for us. God, as we think about your glory and we think about all the ways that you show your manifold wisdom and your glory, God, we are thankful that as a church you do that, that you display your glory 
by us being assembled here this morning. But God, we also know that you are glorified by the individual people that are made up here as well. And so, Father, we thank you this morning for a particular group of people that make up a large part of our church. Father, we thank you for the women of South Canyon Baptist Church. Father, we thank you first for saving them, that you have called them into faith and repentance through Jesus Christ. Father, what a gift it is that we know there are women here that were in darkness of sin, but you have brought them into the dominion of your kingdom of light. And so, Father, we praise you for that. Father, we praise you that you are working in the women of South Canyon's lives. Father, we praise you that you are growing them into more Christ-likeness as they love one another, as they get together, as they talk about you with one another. Father, we pray that you would continue to increase more and more your name in the women of South Canyon. Father, we pray as well that as you send women out of our church, that you might be glorified as they have the gospel ready on their lips so that others may glorify you as they glorify you. Father, we pray that you would encourage the women here in this church. Father, we pray that ultimately they would be great examples of how to follow Christ for our younger women and for the little children as well. God, we love you and are so thankful for the way that you have placed such amazing and incredible women in our congregation. Father, we pray that you would encourage them for the many days ahead that they have here at this church. God, from time to time, we pray for different government authorities and different entities in this church. Father, your word instructs us that we ought to do that. So this morning, Father, we pray for our mayor here in Rapid City, Mayor Steve Allender. Father, we pray that you would give him wisdom, that you would help him to walk in this office that you have given him with fear and trembling. Father, we pray that he would exercise any authority that he has been given by the people here in Rapid City for the good of the people of Rapid City. And ultimately, Father, we ask that you, in your kindness, would help him to remember that this position of mayor that he has, God, that it is not ultimately one that is earned by him, but that was given to him by you. So, Father, we pray that any authority that he has, that he would remember it's not his own, that it's granted to him for a time because of your sovereign and righteous hand. Father, we thank you for him and pray that you would bless his office and his time there and his administration and ask, God, that we as a people here situated in this city would flourish because of his administration over Rapid City. Father, we finally pray for ourselves and ask that through the preaching of your word that you might speak to us. Father, we pray that we wouldn't look at the Bible just as merely letters printed on a page, but, Father, as a way that you have communicated to your children. And so, God, we pray that you would hear our prayer to speak to us this morning. God, we recognize that many of us have been given a great opportunity that many do not have to sit under the preaching of your word. So, God, we pray that we would hear you this morning. Father, use a broken vessel like myself for that purpose. And God, more than that, we pray that from your word being proclaimed here this morning, we ask that you might draw others to faith in you so that they might have a seat at your table in eternity. Father, we ask all of these things in the same vein that we prayed at the beginning of this prayer. Father, we pray that all these things would bring you glory and especially bring your son, Jesus, glory. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.
Amen. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing this morning? I didn't get to do my usual welcome, so I have to feel like I get out all the jitters. Uh, it's good to see you all this morning. I recognize as well, uh, it's a major accomplishment for you to be here this morning. It's daylight saving, so props to you who made it here technically an hour early uh, compared to what you usually have done. And then for those of you who might be watching on the live stream, uh, it's okay uh, that you're not here. We hope you'll join us next week. Uh, Turn with me to Esther chapter 7. And what we do here at South Canyon Baptist Church is this thing called expositional preaching. And what expositional preaching seeks to do is to look at a passage of Scripture, and Lord willing, whoever's preaching up here will make the point of their sermon the main point of that passage as well. So what we are doing in expositional preaching is exposing the meaning of that text. And so that's my hope for us this morning. So as you turn to Esther 7 and page 414, everything that I'm saying this morning, you're going to want to make sure that if I'm saying it, it's being grounded in this book. We don't look at this book here at South Canyon Baptist Church as just a, a mere guide or a place to have a launching pad for what we want to say. Ultimately, we want to communicate and we want to say what the Word of God is saying. So join with me in Esther chapter 7. And before we get into it, I want to know if how many of you have ever watched some late 1960s television, 1960s television, anybody in here? Go ahead and raise your hands, it's okay, I know we're Baptists. Okay, late 1960s television watchers, good. Okay, I'm going to read a quote, I want to see if this sounds familiar to you. There is a fifth dimension, beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Yeah, yeah, I heard some people say it with me. Good. I'm sure many of you, uh, I I don't have Rod Serling's uh, unbelievable surly voice in here, but I'm sure you guys could hear as I was reading uh, that introduction of the twilight zone, you could hear Rod Serling's voice in your head. These words, which ultimately served as the introduction to the TV series, The Twilight Zone, were meant ultimately to orient the viewer into episodes of the show where no matter what, time after time, episode after episode, a plot twist or a sudden change would occur. And these stories, I'll be honest, they were incredible. Episodes like The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street or the episode Eye of the Beholder are perhaps some of the best writing in television ever. I would argue that they have some of the best stories to tell in television ever. Whenever I'm talking about the Twilight Zone, I'm talking about the original from the 1960s, not the newer stuff that's happening. What I'm talking about, I believe to be one of the best television series ever that has ever been aired. There was a time a few years ago, actually, whenever I would watch episode upon episode and just watched kind of countless hours of it. I was a single guy uh, living in Oklahoma as a youth minister, and th- that's what I would do. I'd go home after I get done with my stuff. I'd do whatever reading I wanted to do, and I would just come home and watch The Twilight Zone for hours. Um, and I would watch it really late into the night, which was kind of unfortunate for me because I'm easily spooked. Um, so I'd watch it, and that sudden fate would occur, and then I couldn't fall asleep because of all of these crazy circumstances that happened in these episodes. But one of the main reasons I love The Twilight Zone um, is because of this use of this idea known as poetic justice. Over and over, there would be a moment or a time in the show where almost sometimes unexpectedly, evil characters or evil situations, they would just suddenly be resolved and they would be fixed. And 
oftentimes people who were wicked would get finally what they deserved. More often than not, what the Twilight Zone was doing in the 1960s was actually trying to communicate a lesson uh, to uh, the viewer of that period. Whether it was about racism, war, addiction, nothing was off limits when it came to Rod Serling's mind and what he was trying to communicate to the viewer during that time. Well, this morning in Esther 7, I think there's something that we're trying to kind of see here as well. I think the author is trying to communicate to us as readers a familiar principle. The author wants us as readers and the original readers as well to learn a lesson. So before we get into this episode of Esther in the Twilight Zone, I think it might be helpful for us to go back and consider what's already happened in the book. If we remember from last week, Esther was not involved in the story. The actual character, the female Esther, was not involved in the story. Actually, what occurred last week was the beginning of a a changing trajectory in the story of Esther. So what we found last week was that Haman, who's one of the major characters and the main antagonist, as we all know, of this story, he's an enemy of the people of God, he was expecting to be exalted by King Ahasuerus. But instead, everything goes sideways. Where he thought he was going to be exalted, instead... It was his number one enemy, one of the main protagonists in our story, Mordecai. He was instead exalted. And after chapter 6, we were left waiting. If you remember from last week, we were left waiting in silence to see what was going to happen, even though it seemed like the story was beginning to take a different turn. An important thing to remember, though, as we dive into our chapter today, the only people who know about Esther's true identity as a Jew, as a person who belonged to the people of God, the only people who are privy to that information right now are Esther, Mordecai, and the poor eunuch who had to run back and forth in chapter 4. As a matter of fact, even as we go back into chapter 5 from a few weeks ago, the king and Haman, they have not learned that Esther is a Jew. Instead, what we've seen is the strategic and careful plan of Esther to win good fortune before the king. And that came first by her hosting a feast for the king and for Haman. In that first feast, the king asked Esther, Esther, what do you want? What's your wish? Even up to the half of my kingdom, what would you desire? And Esther responds by saying, the one thing that she wants more than anything, if she has favor and fortune in front of the king, she wants another feast. Another feast with Haman and the king. And so what we read last week was a time between Feast 1 and Feast 2, which is this week. And so, as I mentioned, things seem to be taking a drastic turn. Things are heading in a different direction. Things seem to be looking more hopeful for the people of God and for Esther. And not so good for Haman as we got into the end of our passage last week. But with that said, let's no longer keep ourselves waiting. Let's dive into this episode and continue in Esther chapter 7. Read with me. I'll actually begin in verse 14 of chapter 6. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine, after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, 
If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, as men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, and who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Woo! I'm right? Like, I mean, if you think about it, we have been going through this passage, this particular book, for weeks now. And finally, just desserts happen for Haman. And so, with that said, as we get into this passage, this is what I think the main idea of Esther 7 is. This is what I believe the author is wanting to communicate to us as readers and to his original readers as well. This is the main idea. God's judgment will be determined by who we identify with. Again, God's judgment will be determined by who we identify with. So identify with the king. God's divine judgment will be determined by who we identify with. So identify with the king. What we're going to do is we're going to look at this text kind of in two major movements. And it's actually going to be three points. So just know that ahead of time. We're going to have three points. We're going to look at two significant moments just walking through the passage. And then a final point for ourselves. And so the first point that we're going to be talking about is Esther's declaration in verses 1 through 6. And then the second point will be Haman's destruction, which we find in verses 7 through 10. And then finally, the third point is our decision. So essentially what we're going to be doing in those first two points is considering and looking at things, noticing things within the text. And then that last point, how do we apply this main idea to ourselves? This main idea of God's judgment will be determined by who we identify with. So identify with the king. That's what we're going to be doing today. That's how we're going to be going through this. So with that said, let's start in our first point, Esther's declaration, which we find in verses 1 through 6. So the moment has finally arrived in verse 1. And what has felt like weeks, which has actually only been a couple of days in the actual text, the time has now come for Esther to make her plea before the king. Again, remember, back to chapter 4, Mordecai, her uncle, challenged Esther Perhaps you have been raised up for such a time as this to help deliver your people from this impending decree. There's a decree from the hand of Haman, and actually from the king himself as well, that was sent out to all the regions and all the provinces of Persia at that time to destroy all of the Jews. 
And ultimately, this impending destruction is seemingly meant and up to whether or not Esther is going to talk. Now has time come for Esther to make her plea. But as we've seen earlier, Esther, she's very wise in her dealings. I would say that a characteristic of Esther is that she's very, very tactful. She's waited until the feast has been served, until all the wine has been drunk, and all the hearts are merry because of this. And in this crucial moment, Esther finally declares what her true desire and wishes from the king. The king being merry with wine, he asks this question, Esther, what do you want? What's your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Esther finally declares what her true desire is here in this very moment. And just like in chapter 5, we see almost the exact same language being used both by Esther and by the king as well. But the answer to the request and to the wish is now different for Esther. Esther answers in verse 3, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleased the king, again, that's exactly what she said in chapter 5. This is where things get different. Let my life be granted let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. She answers exactly to the T what the king's question was. What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? She answers exactly those two questions in her response. Her life is her wish and her people is her request. And then in verse 4, to give the king, it seems like, more context to why she's explaining that she wants her life to be spared and she wants her people's life to be spared. She, she talks about, in verse 4, she says, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Likely what Esther is doing here in this moment is trying to jog the king's memory about this decree that actually he set up. His signet ring went on the decree that went out to all the provinces in Persia. And also, at the same time, remember who also is in presence at this feast. Haman. And so, as she says, and she uses very, very carefully, she uses the exact wording in her wish whenever she says, destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. These are the exact words that we found in the decree at the end of chapter 3 that Haman written down. So, not only is Esther trying to jog the king's memory, but at the same time she's giving a a pretty good elbow over to Haman saying, I know what you're up to, and I'm actually going to do something about it. But if you notice Esther in her answer, she ultimately doesn't implicate the king for this decree. She doesn't really place all the blame on his feet. Instead, what we see in her answer is she uses the same language of Haman from the decree. So she's very specific in in what she says to the king because she does not want to, in some way, upset the king, but instead uses Haman's own words against him, which is why she says at the end of verse 4, my people for my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Even that statement, for we have been sold, is referencing to the idea that Joel talked about a few weeks ago, that Haman was willing to pay into the king's bank account if this task 
this decree was carried out. She also speaks about this request in such a way that ultimately, if this decree were followed through, it would be a loss to the king. Do you see that at the end of verse 4? She says, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. That verse is questioned. Uh, Many interpreters and, and many commentators have no idea exactly how to interpret this verse because Ultimately, there's this textual thing going on where the same thing is written down twice and nobody knows what uh, Esther is really saying here. But ultimately, I think what the thrust is is that if they would have just been sold over to slavery, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal because ultimately, it still would have served the king. But what she's saying here, because there's this impending decree of death, this could be of immeasurable loss to the king. We have to remember King Xerxes, or King Ahasuerus at this point in time, has suffered an incredible loss because of his war with the Greeks. And so any, if you will, property or value that he can gain, it is in his favor. And so losing an entire population that would serve him, that has been enslaved to him, if they would just be destroyed and annihilated, that would ultimately be of loss to the king. And I think what she's doing is trying to build up some credit for herself with King Ahasuerus. I think there's two significant things that we see here in Esther's response. First, Esther finally, she finally identifies with her kin, with the Jewish people. I mean, look at the corporate language that Esther uses in this passage. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have not been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. My people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people. If we, if our, if us. These words, phrases and words like us, me, we, our, are being used by Esther to place her identity squarely now with the people of God, with the Jewish nation. She is declaring to King Ahasuerus and to Haman, I myself am a Jew and I belong in the Jewish community. I belong with the people of God. So far in our story, at least this is my interpretation of it, we have not been able to get a significant or a clear read of Esther's character up to this point. Even in chapter 5, we see perhaps a a change of direction, um, but it's not very clear what she's going to do still after chapter 5. There is a transition, but now there is no doubt that she identifies herself with the people that are meant to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. These words, and ultimately her identification because of these words that she just spoke, because it's been hidden from the king, these words would have cost Esther her life. Her identification with the people of God would have cost her her life. And yet, as we remember in that statement and that challenge from Mordecai, if she is going to die, she's going to die as a person who belongs with the people of God. She wants to identify with God's people. Secondly, the thing I think that we also should notice is what we find in Esther's response is Esther placing all of her hope, all of her credit, if you will, upon the basis of her relationship to the king. This request and wish 
it, it wouldn't have mattered. It would have been unbelievably insignificant if it would have been asked by anyone else. But again, in Esther's wise and strategic and tactful dealings, we see here that her answer is ultimately rooted through a special kind of proximity, a special kind of a relationship that she has with King Ahasuerus. She knows King Ahasuerus. She has a special kind of relationship with him, not only just as the queen, but also as his wife. Parents, you probably kind of get what Esther is doing here, right? You've probably seen this with your children, where they come up to you and, and blink your eyes and they bat their eyes at you and say, Mom, Dad, I love you so, so much. Please, can I have another bowl of ice cream? I mean, kids, you, you do this all the time. It's okay to admit this. You, you butter up your parents. You, you love on them to then ask the whole world of them. I mean, I, I, I'm finally starting to realize this because my one-year-old daughter, who can't even really say anything coherent, can just smile at me the right way, and I'll be like, okay, I'll give you some more of my food. Hey, children, just FYI, this is an aside. If you want to gain some favor with your parents, make sure you ask them politely. Use your manners, just FYI. That's an aside. That's not even in my sermon notes. Just an aside. Butter up your parents if you want to uh, gain some favor with your parents. But gain favor in the right way, parents, right? Okay. Moving on. If the king truly loves Esther, this is really what she's trying to get at. If the king truly loves Esther, if their relationship is what so far he says it is with all this fortune and all this favor— if he really believes this, then he must side with Esther. Esther, ultimately, in this response, in the way she's answered, in the way that she's gone about her dealings with dealing with King Ahasuerus, who just historically is an unbelievably, unbelievably violent man, the way she goes about this ultimately creates a dichotomy for King Ahasuerus. She's ultimately saying... You have to choose between me, the woman whom you say you love, that you would give half of your kingdom to, your wife, your queen, or you have to choose your political advisor. She's creating this unbelievable contrast between her and Haman. Guys, for many ways, this is kind of a, it's either me or your truck kind of situation for the guys, right? King Ahasuerus, it's either going to be me whom you love, whom you've shown much favor toward, or your political advisor, your counselee. And already given how King Ahasuerus replies in verse 5, who is he and where is he and who has dared to do this? Given how he replies in that particular way, probably even knowing that he is guilty of setting up this decree, we can already kind of begin to see that the king's natural emotions, his affinity is not toward Haman, but toward Esther. And then he becomes unbelievably enraged. And in verse 6, after the king asks Esther, who is this? Who has done this? Esther lays the death knell. She nails the final nail into the coffin for Haman. And Esther said, verse 6, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. 
Again, what we find, Esther being tactful and wise in how she answers these questions. Esther answers all three of the king's questions in verse 5 in her response. Who is he? A foe and an enemy. That's who he is. Where is he and who has dared to do this? This wicked Haman. It is finally, after weeks and weeks of us going through this book, it is finally revealed to the king the true nature and the true character of Haman. We as the reader, we've been privy to that information throughout the whole story. But the king, in some ways, has been playing dumb the whole time, not really knowing what sinister motives that Haman has. But now the most significant character in the book who can practically do something about all of this wickedness and all of this evil finally comes to knowledge of the imposter. And lo and behold, guess who it is, King Ahasuerus? It's your second-in-command. It's your right-hand man. I mean, you have to imagine that Ahasuerus' mind was just spinning at this very moment as he came into knowledge of this decree and that it was by Haman and that Esther was a Jew. I mean, his head had to have just been spinning. And Haman, upon reception of the words, as we see at the end of verse 6, Haman was terrified. He was terrified before the king and the queen. Up to this point, I think it's significant as we think about Haman's relationship, he's only related to the king. But now he realizes that the royalty, not just the king, but the queen herself also has some bad beef against him. And he is terrified in light of that. So Haman, his attitude, his terrification, if you will, of these words, he's not terrified only because the king can actually do something about all these things that have now come to light. He's also terrified because the queen has exposed him. And she's exposed him so significantly that it's now this dichotomy. Again, this is important. I think Haman ultimately now finally sees the writing on the wall. Not only can the king do something about it, but this decree, this evil sinister plan that Haman has been plotting has been against the king's wife. He is terrified of the prospect that knowing all of this is now not just in the king's head, but also in Esther's as well. Remember in chapter 6 at the end of our passage last week, verse 13, the wise men and Zeresh, his wife, Haman's wife, said to Haman, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And I talked about last week, it seems like the writing was on the wall for Haman. And now the writing is no longer just on the wall for Haman, but now in view of the judge and the executioner. The verdict has been read. The sentence, it seems like, has been decreed. I think in these first couple points, I think there's a couple of things that can be said here for us as Christians. First, as we think about Esther, identifying not only with God's people, but with God himself, it can be costly. It can be costly to us. Friends, I'm unsure what some of the costs might be for some of you in here in identifying with God. For some of you, it might legitimately mean your job. 
For others, it might mean the loss of a friendship or a few friendships. It could be the loss of money or or the loss of a chance of a promotion. In any case, brothers and sisters, identifying with God is costly. Esther declaring these words that she herself was a Jew could have been costly to the point of her life. And it is costly for us as well. Christ told us that if we were not ready to lose our own lives, our very selves, for the sake of following him, he tells us to not follow him. A part of our response to the gospel, brothers and sisters, whenever we respond in faith and repentance, a part of our response is counting the cost. It's truly understanding and and saying, if I identify with God, I lose out on myself, my own desires, my own gain. I could lose my own life because of this. As we think about here in a few weeks, whenever we have baptism, one of the things that those baptismal candidates are going to be declaring before us all that are watching, they're going to be declaring that I belong to King Jesus. And that I myself am no longer the king and lord of my life, but Jesus is. I am willing to lose my life for the sake of following Jesus. Friends, following Jesus costs us. That cost may look different for us in our different contexts, but it will cost us. I pray that we would be a people, especially here at South Canyon, that have not only considered the cost, but we are also willing to pay that cost as well, whatever that might look like. Secondly, along with this first application, I think it's also significant to realize how tactful Esther was in her response to the king. While, yes, it may be true that identifying with God as a Christian, it might cost us significantly in different spheres of our lives. But I want us to notice, it must be equally as true that we need to be wise about how we go about identifying ourselves with God. I don't want you to hear me saying, We need to hide our identity. I'm not saying you need to sweep under the rug all of the things that you believe. I think you should be bold about what you believe and especially about who Christ is and what he has done. But I do think we need to remember our Savior's words as he was sending out his disciples to spread his ministry in the kingdom, in the Gospels. Whenever he sent them out, he told them to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. I think many of us, if we're being honest, we would look at ourselves and be like, I want to be like Paul. I want to give up everything for my life. I want to be beaten. I want to be, I want to be thrown to the ground. I want to be thrown into prison. I think all of us want that and desire that. But friends, I also would have us remember, Paul was also tactful in how he went about declaring the ministry of Christ to the Gentile world. Please remember that at times Paul escaped from the hands of people that wanted to kill him for the sake of spreading the name. He did that through tactful means. He got put into a basket and lowered over a roof one time. You don't have to be like Paul, but you need to be tactful and you need to be bold at the same time. And I pray that we would enter into that tension well as Christians. Our story's not quite finished yet, right? We, we feel like the writing is no longer on the wall. It's in the view of the judge and executioner. So let's move on to our second point, Haman's destruction in verses 7 through 10. As we find in verse 7, this news, it lands on the king in such a way that he is wrathled. And it says in the text here, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went to the palace garden. His wrath is unbelievably kindled. He is so angry that 
not only does he not say anything, but he just storms out. And it seems like in verse 7 that just this wrath just almost kind of sobers him up. He was merry with wine, and then all of a sudden he is just arisen out of that wine drinking and into a wrathful kindling, and he just goes out to the palace garden. We're really unsure why he stepped out of the feast and out of the palace garden, but what we do know is that he was incredibly angry. That's to say the least, right? Some commentators suggest that the king was stepping out to figure out how he's going to handle this situation. Upon this news of this decree and how it was affecting Esther, more than likely, there was probably some guilt that was finally landing on him for realizing that he was a passive character in all of this and that actually he is to blame for what is now coming and impending on Esther and her people. So maybe he goes out to the palace to try to figure out, oh my goodness, how do I deal with this? And this is all my fault. And he's just in a conundrum. And it makes him ultimately just as culpable. I mean, if you can think about it, in this kingdom, if this would have been known that the queen was Jewish, it would have made him look like such a fool. Politically, this could have been an unbelievable downfall for him. So, yes, I I believe it was absolutely true that his wrath was stirred up because of this news about Haman. But I also think it's also true that his wrath was stirred up because of the predicament that he caused for himself. He was digging his own grave at some level and didn't even know it. Ultimately, the king will have to figure out what to do. And as we see in verse 7, it seems that he's intent on trying to shift the blame to Haman at this point. It says at the end of it, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from the queen, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. It seemed, even as he was stepping out, that the king was going to do something about it, and actually it was going to be Haman that was going to pay the price, not the king. We also see in verse 7 that Haman stayed to beg for his life from Esther. Because, as I mentioned earlier, it seems like his fate is absolutely certain. The writing is no longer on the wall. Something is going to be done about his wickedness and evil. The end of verse 7 puts it this way. For he, Haman, saw that harm was identified against him by the king. And what Haman does in response to this, even as the king steps out into the palace garden, Haman breaks all sorts of cultural protocol. A king's court in Persian Empire was called a harem. And in harem protocol, a man and a woman had certain proximities and distances that they were supposed to be in light of each other. The only person that could be close to the queen in a harem was the king. He was the only one that could ever actually be alone with her. So again, the king steps out, and how come Haman's not going with the king? He's staying with Esther. Rule number one, broken. Rule number two, as we see also in the text, he falls down before her. Harem protocol, at least what we know historically, calls that men were not supposed to get within even three feet of the queen, unless granted to by the king. Falling at her feet, that's a little bit closer than three feet. Social distancing back in the time of Haman, right? So Haman breaks all of these protocols, and now he just keeps digging and digging his grave. And as the king walks back in, we simply read that Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Again, breaking harem protocol. The author does not give us full information what Haman was doing or what he was attempting. Most commentators, they agree that he's not trying to molest her or trying to assault her in any way. But he was just simply begging for his life. 
He was at her feet saying, please, please don't do this. But in any case, the king, again, who is in a conundrum, finds this and sees this and uses this as an opportunity to take care of and to resolve and to shift all of the blame on Haman. And thus, he not makes himself culpable in the decree. He places all of the evil, all of the wickedness on Haman and sees an opportunity for that and takes care of it. Before we move on kind of in the retelling of the story, I, I, I do not think we should miss out on the literary genius of the author of Esther. If you remember from chapter 3, the decree to destroy the Jews, and, and particularly Haman's intent on destroying Mordecai, all centered around because Mordecai would not bow to Haman. Haman, being a good Jew, would not bow to anyone else other than God. And the author of Esther, using poetic justice or irony or whatever you want to call it, instead he makes sure that the reader understands and that we see that it was actually Haman who falls before the people of God. He falls before the very group that he wanted to destroy. There is such great irony in this. And the king seeing Haman, the king makes his own decree on Haman's life. The optics what Haman might have been doing were so egregious to the king that the only answer could be death for Haman. And as one pastor, Alistair Begg, stated, it is final curtains for Haman. And to continue on in this theme of poetic justice, Harbona, who serves as one of the king's eunuchs, and he's mentioned in chapter 1, he just so happens to make mention of these gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, and that they're there in his courtyard. They could be used. Also, remember, um, King, you need to remember that um, he was actually going to have these gallows built and had these gallows built for Mordecai, who just so happened to save your life. Again, this theme that we see in Esther, God using insignificant people to make, insig- to make significant things happen, we see it again here with Harbona. Only mentioned once in the text previous to this, but he was seeing and watching what was going on. And he says, hey, there's some gallows. And he mentions that they were meant for Mordecai, who just so happened to save the king. Momentum continues to go away from Haman and more toward the people of God for Esther and Mordecai. I can only imagine what is racing through Haman's mind as his head is covered and he hears those words of Harbona. And then he hears the words of execution in verse 9, wherein the king says, Hang him on that. I mean, if you can think about all that Haman has gone through, all that he has endeavored to raise up to this point, he was second in command in all of Persia. And then to think about in a moment, I'm going to be hung on the very gallows that I meant to destroy my number one enemy. Could have just been unbelievably mind-blowing for him. And this is what happens. Haman is hung on these gallows of his own making. Evil and wicked Haman dies upon the gallows that were meant for his very evil and very wicked plans. And finally, some part of the story of Esther is resolved. And as we are informed at the end of verse 10, the wrath of the king abated. I think there's three major thematic elements that we want to see and I think that are important to know as we come to this end of the episode of Esther here in chapter 7. First, I want us to see that 
divine justice for God's people, it's finally been served. While it's only been served in part, it has still been served. It's, it's still true that God's covenant promise to his people still stands, and it will not be thwarted by this enemy of God. You see, when Haman pushed the decree to destroy all the Jews and all the regions and all the provinces of Persia, Haman was actually challenging the very promise of God that would be through this very people, through the Jewish community that Haman was attempting to destroy, that the promised Messiah would come. Haman was challenging that with hand and fist. And all this came about. All of this came about because of Saul's failure in 1 Samuel 15. Because Saul did not kill the Agagite king, Agog, this never would have happened. But now finally, justice for 1 Samuel 15 has been resolved. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul failed to kill a king named Agag. And before, he did, before the priest at that time killed him, Agag was able to have relations with his wife one more time. And thus his line continued on to Haman. And finally, a Benjaminite, not a king, but a queen, would serve justice and do what Saul had failed to do. While not related at all to Jesus in terms of lineage, because she was a Benjaminite, Esther's action to speak and to speak up caused a chain of events that not only rectified Saul's failure in 1 Samuel 15, but ultimately, in, in a bigger picture, it served to spare all of the people of God. And through the sparing of these people, the Lion of Judah would be raised up. Finally, finally, these people would come out of exile eventually, and then centuries later, Jesus would be born, the king of all kings. Secondly, I want us to see that the last recorded words of Haman and and how they're related to our story today. So turn back with me to uh, chapter 6 and verses 7 through 9. In these words we observed last week that ultimately Haman was prideful in this request. And I just want to read this very quickly. So the king asked Haman as he's walking in, What should be done for the person that the king delights to honor? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse throughout the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Remember, one of the things that Haman said before, he said to himself before he listed all these things that he wanted, is he said, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And then we see all of this desire and all this selfish pride come out of Haman here in this moment. And in these words, we observed, ultimately, Haman is really, really selfish. They are the selfish desires of a wicked man. And I don't think it's of consequence. This was the last time that Haman spoke. The last time that Haman spoke was actually, as he was leading Mordecai throughout the city, saying, Thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. But there is radio silence from Haman for the rest of the story. And I don't think it's without consequence that the rest of the story for Haman is an answer to Haman for the request that he made in chapter 6. So instead of being lifted up on a horse, instead, Haman is 
lifted up on gallows that he made. Instead of being lifted up, excuse me, instead of being dressed in royal robes, Haman is dressed with a head covering to declare his execution. And finally, instead of having a nobleman declaring through the city that the king is delighted to honor Haman, the noble Haman, the noble Haman by virtue, is hanging and now declared to be cursed. Because as we read earlier from our passage in Galatians and from Deuteronomy 21, cursed by God is anyone who hangs upon a tree. Instead of having honor bestowed on him, Haman is now declared to be cursed. Finally, a major theme of Esther that we see here in this passage is identity or identification. While God has certainly and sovereignly orchestrated all of the things in this narrative, it is through individual choices that moments happen. A major question that looms very large for all the characters involved is ultimately, who do they identify with? And it's really important, especially as we just talked about, it's really important to see that the selfish requests of Haman ultimately show who he has allegiance toward. It's toward himself. In this chapter, we are meant to see the contrast of Haman's identification with himself and Esther's identification with King Ahasuerus and with her people and ultimately with God. What we see here is identification matters. Who ultimately gets spared in this story? The one who identifies with the king and the one who identifies with God. And I think the same question looms for us as well. Who do we identify with? Which brings us to our final point, our decision. As we were last week, as we find ourselves again this week, we find the story not yet completely resolved. The tables have been turned, but now Esther and her people are still a part of this decree of the annihilation. They are still meant to be destroyed. This decree cannot be overturned. And, and we also find ourselves in a situation with a king that seems unbelievably unpredictable. I mean, look at how our passage ends. I, I think this is meant for literary purpose. It says at the end of verse 7, then the wrath of the king abated. We have a king who is off his kilter here. and We have no idea what he's going to do. That last sentence in our passage is haunting, I believe, for us as readers. As we read that statement, I believe we were to feel the terror of who Ahasuerus is. But even more than that, friends, I think what the author wants us to notice is that there is a greater king. There is a greater king whose wrath is even more kindled and is even more consistent than how Ahasuerus has typically functioned in the story. And unlike Ahasuerus, this king is just in his wrath. Well, I'm certain, like all of you, I want to be identified with Esther. I want to be like Esther in the story. I want to speak up on behalf of my people. I want to do the right things at the right time. And I want to do right by the Lord. I, I'm sure all of us want to be in that kind of position. But for myself, and, and maybe for you as well, if we were to look back at the last week, on the last month, and maybe the last year, I bet, if I had to guess, that our heart and our inclinations have evidence that we ultimately at times, do not identify with our own, do not identify with God, but instead identify with our own desires and our own selfishness. 
What hope is there for us? What hope is there for those of us who seemingly over and over again want to declare allegiance to ourselves instead of the King of all kings and our Lord? Whether you are an unbeliever or a believer here this morning, the penalty for all of us is like that of Haman. We ought to have the just wrath of God placed upon us. We have broken God's law. We have broken the first commandment by placing ourselves first and above God and worshiping our own wants and our own desires more than God. Friends, because we have broken this law, we are cursed. All of us have done this. All of us have placed our own desires, our own wants before God. And because of this, we are now under a curse because we have broken God's good and holy commandment. And as our scripture reading this morning declared for us this reality, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And if we look at the, even the Ten Commandments, I bet it's not just commandment number one that we've broken for kids. Maybe you've not honored your father and mother. For those of us, we've coveted. We've bear, borne false witness. We've broken all of God's law. What hope is there for us today, friends? Believer and unbeliever, what hope is there for us? Christ. There is hope in Christ, the King of kings. We put our faith in Jesus. Paul declared this in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. We are saved from the curse of God's just wrath. We are saved from that by doing what Esther did this morning. Friends, we identify with the king. We put our identity in the right place. We trust in Jesus by him taking on the curse of breaking the law. We put our trust in him by taking the curse of that law breaking in our place. And we hide in faith in Jesus. We are sheltered, if you will, from the curse of the penalty of sin. And it is through faith that we identify with God. We trust if we place ourselves in faith, in union with Christ, we will be hid from the wrath of the King. And more than that, we will now know and understand that while we were once enemies of God, we are now friends. And we are invited, just like Esther was, to commune and to feast with the King. But not just for a time, but for eternity. So the question for all of us today is, who do you identify with? Friend, you must make a decision. Believer, identify with Christ. Die to yourself. Let him be your king. But for the unbeliever in the room, you must make a decision. Who will you identify with today? I hope and pray it will be in the king. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much this morning that we have been invited to sit at your table. That though we were cursed, you became a curse for us. I'm reminded of Paul's words that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. God, we now get to sit at your table through faith in Christ. So, Father, I pray for ourselves this morning that we, in faith, might hide ourselves in the kings and identify ourselves with Jesus by faith. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.